1: Hello and welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune in to today's show. Galaxy Digitals and others are feeling the chill of crypto winter. We're going to dis- we're gonna discuss reports of a new wave of job cuts. Plus, how do you find value in this bear market? Venex, Pranav, Kanade will join us live to discuss. Stay tuned for that. My name is Marco Oliveira. Moritz Siebert is back in the chair with me today. How's it going, Moritz?
2: Marco, always great and always to be back. Always great to be back on the show with you.
1: Yeah, it's always a pleasure having you on. For the viewers out there, don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe and hit the notification bell so you don't miss when we go live. With that said, let's jump into the latest price action. Bitcoin is virtually unchanged on a 24 hour basis. It's currently trading just under 20,500. Bitcoin is also now down on a weekly basis. So the bullish sentiment we have seen lately has evaporated somewhat. The stable price of Bitcoin though, has given some relief to MicroStrategy, which is one of the biggest corporate holders of Bitcoin. The company reported an impairment charge of 727,000 on its Bitcoin holdings uh, in, in, in the third quarter. That's compared to some 918 million in the previous quarter. Moving on to Ethereum, we're seeing a similar situation. It's holding steady above 1500, but it's been down for the past day and week. According to new research from US bank City, Ethereum is heading toward a deflationary future. City says ETH's volatility has dropped to historic lows in the wake of the merge, which, of course, moved the Ethereum blockchain to the more energy-efficient proof-of-stake consensus mechanism. This has resulted in a net issuance of Ethereum falling close to zero, whereas before the merge, annual inflation of supply was around 4.2%. All in all, investors remain in a wait-and-see mode. We're expecting another rate hike from the Fed later today. The market believes the most likely outcome is a raise of 75 basis points. This would take U.S. interest rates to 4%, the highest level since 2008. Moritz, what about
2: you? What are you looking at? What's your take on all of this? well market you call it price action but it's definitely price but where is the action i mean you know <laughs> there is no action really it's like watching paint dry still when i was on the show last week um i was kind of like saying look i mean there's this breakout it looked like you know ethereum and and, and bitcoin um you know did have a breakout and and but there hasn't been a follow-through it's kind of like you know back into the range you know it's stuck there range bound trading sideways so I guess with tonight's FED decision, one way or the other, there's going to be some movement. It's going to be interesting to see if there's going to be enough movement, enough momentum to really, you know, get Bitcoin and Ethereum breaking out to the top side and, and, and move higher from there. So I really don't know. Realized volatility is still super, super low. Um, you know, Bitcoin feels like 19500 to 20500 all the time with... You know, realized volatility less than the s and p five hundred. So it's very unusual for crypto to do this. Maybe it's coiling up and you know bursting through at some point. Uh, I hope to the top side, but let's see what happens tonight.
1: yeah, hopefully to the top side. So with the realized volatility, how long has it been in this like lower than s and p five hundred? Mort, do
2: you, I, do you I don't know, know more the or exact or number, but you know, I I picked it up the last couple of weeks. I mean, just by looking at the chart. I mean, you know, when you zoom into the Bitcoin chart, say from the lows in June or you know, the recent lows in June uh, to now. It's essentially range bound behavior, you know, between 18,000 and say 22, 23,000. it's became, it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller that range to the point where it's like 19,000 to 21,000, 19,500 to 20,500. And it's really, you know, the the good thing is the markets also kind of stopped selling off on bad news, which is, Mm. you know, every time that happens, I think it increases the probability of the lows actually being in. I'm not saying that they are because there's no guarantees. We're always dealing in probabilities and not uncertainties. I mean, there could be that washout trade, a very painful washout trade that takes Bitcoin and Ethereum to new lows uh, for this year. Um, but you know, quantitatively speaking, the longer you stay in that range and the more resilient that market becomes to all sorts of news, it just doesn't go down anymore the greater the probability becomes that you have actually seen the lows in June. Um, so with that being said, maybe there's this coiling up where at some point we'll just have that breakout to the top side, kind of like a relief valve. And then we move higher from there. I hope that's, what's going to happen, but who knows? I don't have the crystal ball.
1: Right. Nobody has a crystal ball. And definitely, we hope that that, that happens. I'm sure that these uh, these companies that we're going to talk about in our next story definitely would hope that happens. Uh, so moving on to our top story, one of the most well-known crypto companies, Galaxy Digital, led by Mike Novogratz, is reportedly looking to make big layoffs. <clears throat> Sources familiar with the matter say plans at the digital financial services company are still to be finalized, but between 15 to 20% of the staff could be cut, which means potentially more than 70 jobs. Uh, it's not the only high-profile company making cuts. There are reports of job losses at crypto exchange BitMEX uh, and then a venture capital uh, company Digital Currency Group. According to Coindesk, it was only three years ago that Seychelles-based BitMEX was the largest crypto derivatives exchange in the world before falling behind Binance, FTX, and Bybit. A BitMEX spokesperson told Coindesk that the company has reduced its workforce as it pivots back to focusing on derivatives trading. And finally, Bloomberg says Digital Currency Group made around 10% of its staff redundant. Moritz, it's been a while since we had so many reports of job cuts in the crypto industry all at once. What do you make of it?
2: yeah but it also has happened like you know after luna and after celsius i mean it's not that long ago and unfortunately it is a byproduct of a bear market you know businesses shrink and uh, we have to be realistic about this you know the digital asset markets are still in a bear market we hope that they will break out of that but you know we're we're definitely around the lows so unsurprising and volumes and activity and all these type of measures they're they're down relative to where they were say a year ago so you know it's not a surprise for me that you do see these layoffs. You've seen them on centralized exchanges, you know, DeFi apps, all around the crypto space. Um, it's unfortunate. But uh, with you know, we'll, we'll be speaking with Pranav later on, on on that show about some of the very interesting and exciting future applications in crypto, people can also be hired back very, very quickly in that space. Um, so I hope that's what's going to happen. But for now, yes, it's tough out there. It's not only crypto, by the way. I mean, look, the economies aren't doing well. We have a strong dollar, we have rising rates, we have inflation, like portfolios are on fire. This is not an easy environment by any stretch of the imagination. So it definitely does hit crypto as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, another story we're looking at today, uh, we we got a new point of contention when it comes to Twitter and it's the blue tick that marks verified (laughs) accounts. Elon Musk, who bought the platform last week, has initially suggested a $20 monthly fee for this blue tick. He later revised it to $8. Musk said that this would allow users to get priority in replies, mentions, and searches. Uh, it also gives them the, be- the ability to post long video and audio and to see fewer ads. Twitter already has an optional service with added features for $4.99 a month, but Musk is looking to weave the verified check into this. Ethereum co-founder Vitalik Buterin expressed skepticism about Musk's plans. He said, Said on Twitter, quote, how well this works depends on exactly how much due diligence is done to make sure blue checks are who they say they are. Pay $8 a month and call yourself whatever would damage the blue checks anti-scam role. But if there's more actual verification, the result is very different. Moritz, so a lot of changes potentially coming to Twitter. What do you make of this?
2: Yeah, I like Twitter. Um, But look, you know, Elon has paid a lot of money for this company. He didn't want it. He then purchased it. It's 44 billion bucks uh, you know in in, in a cost term so he's clearly commercial maybe he's looking to find a way to make the money back you know and you know he starts charging look i'm using twitter i'm not being charged for twitter twitter is completely free for me you know i get ads and that type of stuff but um, okay so about the blue check mark My understanding, I don't have one, but my understanding of it is, is that if you want one, or if you have one, you have to have an active account. It needs to be a notable account. There needs to be activity there. It needs to be recognized. And then you have to prove to the platform that you are actually a human being. And you do that by sending in a government D or, you know, government ID or something like that to prove that you're a human. Now, what Elon has mentioned repeatedly is that he absolutely hates the fact that there are so many bots on Twitter. And I agree with that. I hate that, like, you know, all the DMs that I get, not all of them, but like 98% of them is essentially, you know, give me a wallet address or buy that NFT or have, th- have this for free or that for free. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of annoying. So I guess, and this is where I disagree with Vitalik is if you're charging eight bucks a month for a check mark, then people, humans who really want to have that check mark because they want to show to the world that they are verified they will happily pay for it that's fine but if you run a bot farm a bot farm with like thousands and thousands and thousands of spot of bots each paying eight bucks a month that becomes uneconomical and so it may be that may be the objective here is to actually crowd out the bots and not kind of like give everybody you know a way to easily and cheaply get a blue check mark um i think that's the idea it's kind of like the idea of if you're charging a fraction of a cent for every email that you're sending you know spam is dead you know you can't do that with email because it's not owned by anybody but with twitter you can um so that's my hunch i don't have any proof for that um but i'd love it if those bots went away
1: yeah, i love it if the boss would go away for sure. Well, let's move on to our final story before we speak to Pranav. Just yesterday, we reported pretty bad numbers in terms of crypto hacks and exploits in October. It looks like the trend is continuing in November, early in November. Crypto Options and Futures Exchange, Darebit, has confirmed its hot wallets have been hacked. A hot wallet, of course, is a wallet that stores crypto that's always connected to the internet, which makes it easier to hack. Uh, you can ha- store uh, Bitcoin, ETH, and USD, and uh, among many other cryptocurrencies. And those were the hot wallets that were apparently affected. Deribit says $28 million were hacked, uh, adding that client funds are safe and the loss is covered by company reserves. Deribit claims 99% of client funds are kept in cold wallets, which are not online. The company has paused withdrawal so users can't take their money out for the time being. So it seems like it's another day, another hack, more. it's It seems like a serious ongoing problem for the crypto industry. What are your thoughts on
2: this? You know, I'd say it's another day, different hack. And I say that because most of the hacks that we've heard of recently in recent months, they've been at the protocol level, interoperability, DeFi bridges, you know, that type of stuff. That's where the vulnerabilities are. I don't really remember the last time you had a centralized exchange hot wallet attack. Um, no, it has happened with that area, but by the way, I didn't even know about it. Uh, until you mentioned it to me an hour or so ago when we prepared for this, and I just like I'm, I'm a client of Deribit, so I looked up on the app whether my money is still there. It's still there. It's not the first time that Deribit got attacked. They always, I think, to the best of my memory, they've made their clients whole. Um, you know, it's a very profitable business, and they have you know greater than 95, maybe even definitely greater than 90% market share in you know Bitcoin and Ethereum options trading. So it's it's a massive business that they run uh they can afford the 28 million loss it's not nice i'd love it look i hate it i find it absolutely annoying that our space which which we think is you know has the potential to change the world still has these attack vectors open and it happens all the time what i also don't understand is like you know i don't have the dna for that is if you are the attacker and you know, you now have the 28 million. Well, you know clearly you're going to be watched on that blockchain. You know, Deribit is going to be looking out for you. And um, I, I personally, I wouldn't know how to take the money out out of that system without like Tornado Cash. Well, forget about that. Um, so let's see what happens. It's just annoying. I'm glad that my money is still there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you definitely, and other people's accounts are also all full there. Well, anyways, that's the news for today. On to our main interview. Let's bring in Pranav Kanade. He's a portfolio manager at Venex Digital Asset Alpha Strategy. Moritz, Pranav, I'm excited to hear this conversation. Take it away, Moritz. I'll be back with key takeaways after your
2: interview. Thank you, Marco. Hey, Pranav, how are you doing?
0: Good. Thank you for having me.
2: You're more than welcome. It's great to see you again. You know, we, uh, we did speak uh, a couple of weeks ago. I, you know, I found it hugely interesting what it is that you do, but maybe we should start at the beginning and you, you give us a little bit of an intro about yourself, what brought you to crypto, what you do at Venac where you are a portfolio manager, um, what you trade there at the invest? Just give us, give us the scoop.
0: Yeah, happy to. Um, started here in May and we launched our strategy in June, uh, but spent about the last 12 years of my life in corporate credit. I was a distressed and high yield credit analyst. Uh, most recently, I was a portfolio manager at Millennium. Um, yeah, spent most of my time in corporate credit, so kind of cash flow valuation guy at heart. Um, like everyone else, my crypto journey has kind of been personal. Uh, bought Bitcoin first and obviously learned about everything else beyond Bitcoin in kind of the 2017 cycle. And at that time, I think I was most intrigued by prediction markets. Uh, If you spend time with any of the prediction markets, it kind of laid out this vision for allowing human beings to interact in a peer-to-peer way without any middleman in the middle. Um, And you can kind of extrapolate that idea across many different industries. But the thing that was obviously the problem at the time was uh, the systems were just slow, not user-friendly, and at the same time, um, there was no clear association between these projects and tokens and value accrual. And all this really started to change, I think, probably in the 2019 timeframe. And uh, that's when I sort of realized tokens are just a better capital formation tool because it allows a project or a network to not only sort of create intrinsic value to this asset, but also then use that to accelerate network growth. And so as a capital structure guy who's kind of spent most of his time looking at, you know, bonds, converts, equities, every sort of capital structure instrument, I looked at tokens and I said, these are just superior Capital structure instruments at the end of the day for projects, companies, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, anyway, so, so I started spending a lot of time, um, you know, like everyone else, when you use Uniswap or Aave for the first time and you kind of use your imagination from there, you're blown away and where it could all go. Uh, that's kind of, that, that, that's really what happened to me. So, I was consuming 99.9% of my brain power and um, pitched Jan Van Eck on the strategy. So, we got started. Uh, we have a, decent-sized investment team. We're spending all of our time, um, or most of our time, looking at liquid tokens. Um, we we'll also look at sort of securities as well. So we look at crypto-adjacent companies and just across the ecosystem. So we're not venture. We're doing, you know, liquid tokens and everything in the tradable liquid markets.
2: Okay, but what you just said is actually interesting. So you're not a pure token or coin exposure either. You might have, I'm not sure if you do have, but you may have positions in blockchain equities, for instance. Correct.
0: Yep. You know, I'll kind of give a little bit of a perspective on this. Um, In the crypto world, they kind of call this progressive decentralization, but uh, you can kind of use the same theme across the investing landscape and this transition from both, let's say, call it Web 2 to Web 3. There's obviously Web 2.5, which is sort of these Web 2 companies enabling Web 3 experiences, and those tend to be more regular way companies. Um, And then, you know, that is an area where um, we're primarily focused on because those those are that's kind of the subsect of the market where most of the users will come from, and, and that's the area of the market where things are just more user friendly right. and intuitive for most people.
2: Should we think about your fund just maybe from a from a higher level? Like, you know, would you be interested in having exposures to layer ones and layer twos, or are you more interested in kind of like the applications that run, for instance, on a layer one, where you know it's actually something that users can use? it improves their life, it generates fees, it has economics. Is that what you're looking at? I mean, I I have a a sense that that's what you're doing.
0: Yeah, so so I I would almost say all of the above. Um, At a very high level, you know, 300 million people in the world own crypto today. There's about 100 million active users on exchanges. There's only about 2 to 3 million daily active users using dApps on chain on a variety of different blockchains uh, if you can aggregate them. So we're just really focused on what are the products and services that will enable more of those 300 or 100 million people to use applications on chain, and they, that could take in many that could take many shapes or form. Uh, you know, you were talking about Twitter earlier. You know, obviously, one could argue the end state of Twitter should be something on a blockchain where a user can custody their identification data or just sort of their social graph. But that's kind of like well into the future. What's more near term is how Twitter could enable something like micropayments using blockchain rails. So we kind of you know, look at what's near-term that could use blockchain rails and then what's way well into the future. And we sort of try to focus on investing in things that are in the 24 to 36 month near-term time horizon.
2: Right. You know, you, you've mentioned, uh, a project or like a company token to me by the name of hive mapper. And I want to speak uh, about it with you in, in, in just a second. I found that interesting because I think about a week or so ago, this big article, uh, in Bloomberg Newsweek came out by Matt Levine, like, you know, 40,000 words, you know, uh, cover to cover just on, just on crypto. And what he said is like, you know, what are these people actually doing in crypto and you know, like, well, they're building exchanges. That is what crypto do. So you can trade more crypto and derivatives of crypto, but what are the actual applications? And, you know, also with with my exponential age hat on, the more of these like real world applications we can see and the more of them are being built and rolled out and people use them to improve their lives and do something different, the better it is. Because that is kind of like the tangible type of stuff that people would like to see in order to say, ah, now I get it. It's now no longer just in the abstract. It's now no longer just, oh, I want to be long at token or coin because it's potentially uncorrelated and it's going up in price. There's actually something, there's a product behind it, right? And you've mentioned Mapper, which I found interesting. I'll let you explain it, but it is a potential, I'd say a potential disruptor to Google Maps. Yep.
0: Yeah, and, and you know you could put Mapper sort of in this category of proof of physical work. Um, helium was sort of the first, um, project to really kind of embrace that model. But the idea is, can we get, again, human peer-to-peer interaction to create some form of a network uh, that can disrupt an industry that has had a middleman in the past? So Helium is trying to do that with mobile networks, trying to disrupt telcos. um, And then HiveMapper is really trying to do that with mapping services. So what most people don't know, because everyone uses Google Maps, right? Google Maps has like 80 to 90% market share in the mapping world. And the way that business model works is you have a bunch of you know, uh, cars that Google owns, or vehicles that Google owns, and drives around the world, trying to map data constantly, um, or map cities and geographies constantly. For the consumer like us, that data is free, but um, Google actually charges companies to uh, access that API. The estimate, according to the Hive Mapper founder, is somewhere between five. Google generates somewhere between five to ten billion dollars per year from the Google Maps API. Um, so, so Hive Mapper is looking at this and saying, can we? Um, do this in a decentralized way so essentially you or i or anyone can go purchase a dash cam um, for about 699 dollars and put this in our car and we can drive around and aka and then connect this collect this thing called the honey token and the way honey the honey token derives it, most of its value is through um usage on the other side so if someone wants to access the hive map or api just the way they would access the google maps api um they would Pay in dollars and those dollars would be used to burn the honey token that hence creates the natural demand for honey token and they're paying people like us who are using these dash cams in that honey token so um, yeah point is you know what this ultimately should create if the vision comes together uh, that, that hive map is really going for is a hopefully a cheaper map solution that breaks the Google monopoly, but also a more live product right so there are parts of the world that Google Maps once every two years here's something that um, People could be mapping on a live basis, so the data could be a lot more fresh, not only from a map perspective, but also from an image perspective, street view perspective. And uh, we had the Hive Mapper CEO on on potential use cases. And one of the areas he pointed out to was AR. So, you know, Apple's making this big bet on AR, but for that AR vision to really come together, you need live images and live maps. And, and Hive Mapper can hopefully play a big role in that, in that
2: space. Yeah, I mean, when you when you imagine a city like you know Manhattan, which is where I think you are, I mean, if, if every yellow cab had a had such a dash cam on, it's essentially a real time, almost real time, view of the world, right? I mean, depending yeah. on how high the throughput on our blockchain can be, and and how efficiently that can be run, maybe where I live, you know, out in, out in the countryside, nobody needs that real time view, but i guess you could also attach that dash cam to your helmet if you're riding you know a mountain bike or you know just a a road bike or you put it on a boat wherever right i mean it, it could be with you all the time um so that i find really interesting i think you mentioned they're probably going to start trading that token uh later on this week um i'll definitely watch out for that now another one that i found interesting is payments i mean we know like credit cards and all the fees and you know all the middleman in between there, but why don't you run us through your view of the world there and how payment services can be disrupted?
0: Yeah, yeah, happy to. Uh, and then the Hive Mapper thing—I don't know if you can actually put it on your helmet. That'd be pretty cool if the, if you could. But the other sort of interesting thing, thing you talked about there was um, these products building on top of each other, right? So Hive Mapper is going to run on Solana, the blockchain that layer one, and also it's going to leverage the Helium network to make sure um, you know the area you're filming, the hotspots of Helium can confirm that it's the right area. So, so you're not saying you're filming in, you know, say Times Square, but you're really sitting in you know, Poland or something, right? So that Helium hotspots will help hopefully validate that part. So the idea that these things can, these systems can build on top of each other is also really coming together here. But, um, you know, the payments area is actually really interesting uh, to, to sort of spend some time on, um, you know, especially in the context of Twitter, right? And you, I heard you mention earlier that uh, could you eliminate spam if everyone paid one cent per email? That kind of thing. And historically it seems like that would not have been possible because of the sort of layer of fees that exists in the credit card and traditional payment rails. So I, I might've shared a chart with you guys. I don't know if you have that, uh, that you could pull up potentially. So it's easier to kind of think about this visually, but uh, if you just look at online payments in general, you kind of have the Stripe at the top, which is the facilitator. Everyone generally uses Stripe in e-commerce. Um, you know, I think even Shopify, spay, Shopify, Shopify Pay runs on Stripe Rails. Um, and then you have all these middlemen in the middle, the processor, the card network, um, and, and, you know, the bank in the middle as well. And then you have the buyer at the bottom. Uh, because some of these costs are fixed, regardless of the quantity of the transaction. So because of that fixed cost nature, doing micropayments historically has been, very, or has been almost uh, impossible to do. Um, so one of the things we're seeing uh, lately is, you know, a couple of months ago, Stripe announced that they're going to be experimenting uh, USDC on stablecoin rails. So what that really means is any e-commerce merchant uh, could theoretically uh, accept payment in USDC. So now it's really up to the buyer in the bottom, which, which you know, is people like us, to pay with USDC. Uh, but if you think about it, the, the real motivation should be for the e-commerce player like walmart.com or Airbnb to enable that buyer behavior, right? Because um, you know, how do you incentivize me who have never, let's just say I hypothetically never used anything on the blockchain. Um, how do you incentivize me to go get USDC and then pay? Well, the answer is like make my user experience really friendly, which is what Walmart or Airbnb, any these C corps should do. Um, and, and also potentially give me discounts, right? If I was gonna book, like, I don't know, an Airbnb for $5,000, if I paid with USDC, I get some discount to, to generally create that user behavior. So, so, you know, we're seeing, now that Stripe is sort of doing that at the top, um, and I think, you know, merchants are very much, or broad, like the e-commerce players are very motivated or incentivized to try this as well. We're going to see some acceleration in this, uh, in this adoption. So, you know, we heard the Walmart CTO make some positive commentary on crypto-based payments. A week or two ago, I kind of look at that as a potential signal on where this is sort of in its adoption cycle. So, you know, just, just to use an example, right, um, a $100 transaction on Walmart means that Walmart actually sees like $97.5 or so today if you got rid of all the middlemen and ran that on blockchain rails and, and essentially if you ran it on a layer two on ethereum or on a cheap layer one walmart can ultimately get 99 dollars a half dollars instead of 97 so there's at least two to two and a half percentage points of uplift in margin for someone like them
2: this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, so I, I definitely get that. But how do you get exposure to this? Like, you know, what is the, okay, we understand this. This sounds interesting. It's probably going yeah. to go that way. It requires stable coin acceptance, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, is it, is it long Ethereum, if it's going to be built on Ethereum, or is there something that is more specific, more laser pointed in terms of the exposure to that space, to that idea?
0: Yeah. So, so there's a couple of ways to generally think about it. I mean, one of the, like, let's to start top down and macro. There's about, you know, 2 billion people in the world today that use payments um, and that kind of TAM is 1.9 trillion, right? That's the entire ecosystem. So the question is, what is that, if that starts to move towards blockchain rails, who are the big winners? Kind of the question you're asking. Um, the, the blockchain that these things are gonna run on, that's gonna be the obvious winner, right? Because people these things will generate gas fees. And so being able to quantify what that gas fee amount is and then how does that then accrue to the layer one that it's gonna sit on is the big question. Is it gonna be one where Ethereum's all that gets 100% of the market share or is that market share going to be split between, you know, Ethereum and a bunch of other blockchains, TBD, right? That's an assumption you have to make it as an investor and ask which blockchain can support high levels of activity for low fees, those, all those types of things. The other area is, is kind of that bottom where, um, you know, does every e-commerce player want to build their own wallet experience or is there a third party that can help facilitate that? So you know, you're seeing the centralized exchanges actually make some movement here. So there's um, something you know, called FTX Pay, if you've spent any time on that. If FTX Pay is something that all these e-commerce merchants try to embrace, then you know, FTX is the beneficiary of it, right? So there's a bunch of centralized crypto exchanges that are trying to enable other e-commerce players into allowing this
2: to happen. Cool, I mean, let's, let's see how that uh, plays out. Another thing you mentioned is web two companies enabling web three experiences. And you've mentioned Reddit and Starbucks and explain us or talk to us about what you see in that space and why that's interesting to you.
0: Yep. You know, one of the primary questions we we always ask as a team here is do people want to self custody private keys? Um, you know, the average user resets their email password once a month that tells you that people are constantly losing their passwords right so imagine kind of custodying like 24 characters or 24 words and then managing all of that um so in the absence of something a lot more easier um in that space we look at sort of these web 2 centralized exchanges especially or even people like reddit or starbucks enabling these wallet experiences that give uh give the user, the end user the benefit of this Web3 experience. Um, So, you know, on the centralized exchange front, one of the things I noticed recently is if you go in your Coinbase app, this is not your Coinbase wallet, and you look up an asset that's not listed on Coinbase, with a clickable few buttons, you can actually trade that asset, and that asset gets, the trade gets routed to a DEX. So it could go to like a one-inch Uniswap, one of the other, sort of one of the decentralized exchanges, right? The user doesn't really realize ultimately where it's all going. But something like that generates fees for the decentralized exchange as well as the blockchain it's running on. Um, so again, makes the self custody nature of it a lot more user friendly. Uh, Reddit was an interesting experience. Uh, you know that, that kind of made the news recently, but um, they were able to onboard I think like two and a half million wallets onto Crypto Rails without the user realizing they were setting up a wallet, and they did it through this password experience. But they even you know essentially sold a whole bunch of. Um, avatars to their end users, like the Reddit users are very active and they are very expressive in how they um, want to display themselves. So they sold these avatars and these avatars could be custodied in their wallet. But the experience itself for the end user felt like, you know, an e-commerce experience, not a wallet custody experience. And the the reason we're really focused on all these types of things is ultimately we say, we did a study internally and we said, what's crypto most correlated to? Um, Everyone likes to think it's kind of like M2 and what the central banks are doing, which optically might seem true. But uh, crypto is actually more correlated to wallet activity. So, as wallet activity increases and and activity on blockchains increase, crypto asset prices uh, also appreciate in the same period of time. So, asking which of these Web2 experiences will create Web3 um, uh, well, which of these Web2 platforms will create Web3 experiences kind of goes back to the question of creating wallet activity on chain. And that's kind of the catalyst I think that can help crypto decouple from other risk assets.
2: Well, I mean, we would definitely like to see that decoupling happening. Um, final one for now, and I, I thought that was interesting as well, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, centralized exchanges to me, they are the gatekeepers to the crypto space period for most people, right? Because they KYC and you know, this type of stuff, but you've mentioned, they could actually be the gatekeepers to the web three world and to yeah, to dApps. In the future through curation what do you mean there
0: yeah no i mean I, I i mentioned the the Dex example just now but you know the other area we constantly think about is gaming because everyone's very excited about gaming on web 3. um and so you know if a member on our team has kind of played every web 3 game and, and is also in the betas of all the ones that are about to launch and when you spend time with these communities uh especially the web 2 gaming community those people ultimately don't care which blockchain this sits on, which wallet they need to use, and and you know all the stuff they need to do. They just want to play the game, and maybe the the in-game asset and currency element is an added feature. Um, and so, if that's where sort of the world is going, then I could see a scenario where you know these gamers ultimately custody all their assets to the NFTs and token assets uh, with the centralized exchanges. So ultimately, which game is going to succeed or which set of um, assets within gaming is gonna succeed might be dependent on which centralized exchanges are allow- are essentially allowing you to exist or whitelisting you to exist.
2: Got it, got it. Well, thank you so much, Pranav. That was uh, a different perspective, a new perspective. Really interesting. Please stay on. We do have at least one, hopefully more VO questions. They're usually quite interesting. So we'd like you to stay on and, and help us answer them. But I'll give it back to Marco for the wrap up. Um, Marco.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was a great conversation. And I'm glad that we got a question because you know Prava- Pranav has a lot of uh, really insightful things to say. Uh, so the conversation was a lot to take in. We talked about e-commerce, tokens as capital creation tools, Web2 companies like Reddit enabling Web3 experiences, but my, I have two main key takeaways that really stood out to me, and the first was in terms of the projects that Pranav is looking for is fun. The focus is on pr- progressive decentralization. There are 300 million people that own crypto, 100 million people that use exchanges, so we're focusing on what are the projects that will enable these the, uh, products and services that will enable and bring in these millions of people into the fold. Once such project that would sounded really interesting is Hive Mapper, which could be a potential disruptor to Google Maps. It's a decentralized map built by people with the world's first crypto-enabled dash cam. Second, uh, you know, many payments right now currently rely on the stripe rails. There's a lot of middlemen in between. Clean. and because of the f- fixed cost nature, doing micropayments has been hard to do. And what we're seeing with Stripe bringing USDC into the ecosystem, this could make uh, this cheaper and would be beneficial to companies. For example, hundred uh, Pranav mentioned a $100 transaction at Walmart today leads to $97, I guess, in terms of what they actually receive. But if you ran it on the cheaper blockchain services, they could make 99.5, therefore increasing their margins. But for this to happen, companies still need to incentivize their users to use use usdc so those were the two main things that stood out to me but if you guys have anything to add you know please let me know pranav how about you is there anything to add to to the takeaways there
0: no that sounded perfect
2: awesome awesome what about you moritz sounded real good let's go to the video questions marco
1: Absolutely. So this question comes from Maximus. Will the creation of a spot Bitcoin ETF be a possible catalyst for a new uh, bull market? I know the futures ETF offering marked the top, but since it's spot, could this be different? Uh, which one of you guys would like to take this? I guess I'll throw this to Pranav first. Let's
2: um, go with Pranav first. I can go second. But uh, I have a feeling that we'll probably have some overlapping opinions on this.
0: Sure. Thing. Um so, so the likelihood of a spot Bitcoin ETF happening anytime in the near future, I have no idea. Like, I don't really know. Uh, even so, so Vanek historically has been focused on that space, and I don't think we have great insights so on when that could happen. It's more of a regulatory question. Could that be a catalyst for Bitcoin price um, potentially? Um, you know, Moritz, I heard you talk about market structure earlier um, on. You know, Bitcoin kind of being range-bound in the sort of the nineteen to twenty-one k range. We spent a lot of time looking at on-chain activity. What's interesting today versus uh, June of this year, when we're in the same price range is the amount of Bitcoin held by long-term hands is at a historical high, higher than where it was in June 2022. Um, But also the amount of Bitcoin that's moved in this kind of 19 to 21, 22k range in June was around 6%. Now it's about 20% of all Bitcoin has moved in that kind of price range. What that tells me is sort of the weak hands are kind of shaking out and it's moving, you know, people are selling at a loss and moving into and then new buyers are coming in in this sort of tight price range. Right. So uh, that to me sort of almost um, indicative of a potential bottom forming forming and, um, you know, all you need is sort of potentially a positive catalyst. So I don't know about the Bitcoin ETF at all, spot ETF, but uh, that's how I think about it.
2: Neither do I. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, if, or when, um, such an ETF will come by the way, here in Europe, we have, um, you know, ETPs tracking spot PTC and spot spot ETH. Um, so catalyst, I mean, it's clearly a gateway it's, it's enabling flows from different investors. So I think it's going to be, or it would be, um, a tailwind for the market. It would be something positive. Um, but then at the end of the day. It's kind of like, you know, owning physical gold bullion outside of the system or owning GLD. If you own the Bitcoin ETF, you own a security, right? I mean, it depends on how that security is structured. And Bitcoin, you know, with the narrative around it, it's, to me, it's kind of like the asset that you want to hold for yourself and custody yourself because it's so much easier to custody yourself than it is with with gold. So I wouldn't be the buyer of that ETF. Uh I hold spot Bitcoin, you know, in my own wallet, but not everybody's like me. And there are a lot of investors out there who just like to have an ISIN, you know, which just like to go through a broker and um, and and buy the product and not be exposed to futures and roll yield and, you know, all these type of things. So wrapping it up in summary, I think it would be a positive event, whether that is going to unleash the new bull market. I don't know.
1: Perfect. Uh, looks like we have another question if you guys are up for it. From up roar or J Pro Rock, um, I'm definitely mispronouncing that. On YouTube, I find token burn burning as a value accrual tool to be ineffective. Is there anything preventing projects from making tender offers to holders and paying in st- stable coins as an alternative value accrual method?
2: What do you think, Lawrence? <laughs> I don't know. I can't really answer that question. That is really uh, outside of my uh, circle of competence, to be quite honest. Um, Sorry about that, but uh, I'm really not the right person to ask. No you
0: worries know, not- I, I was going to say, I'm not so sure I agree with that premise that token burn is not a, an effective value accrual method. Uh, if you look at this bear market, the best performing category um, has been the centralized exchange tokens. And the reason is, you know, they periodically buy, buy and burn or get rid of just through a burn process, get rid of a percentage of their token supply. So there is a natural sort of uh, sync for the token if you want to think about it that way so right. i personally don't agree with that premise but um is there something that prevents you know a project from giving stable coins back as a way of returning capital um the question then becomes more about is that a security and and how do projects mm-hmm. want to navigate that
1: Yeah, very interesting. Well, thank you, Pranav. And thank you both for the conversation. Uh, That's it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto, everyone. Uh, It's free. For those of you watching on YouTube, smash everything, the like button, the bell, and the subscribe button. Join us tomorrow for our interview with Will Clemente on the latest technical analysis and forecast for the crypto market. See you at 12 p.m. Eastern, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.